Section 7 of Early Kings of Norway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine. Early Kings of Norway by Thomas Carlyle. Section 7. Chapter 10. Reign of King Olaf the Saint. Part 2. From a man who built so many churches, one on each battlefield where he had fought, to say nothing of the others, and who had in him such depths of real devotion and other fine cosmic quality, this does seem rather strong. But it is characteristic, withal, of the man, and perhaps of the times still more. In any case, it is an event worth now noting, the slain Jarl and his connections being of importance in the history of Denmark and of England also. Ulf's wife was Astrid, sister of Knut, and their only child was Svein, styled afterwards Svein Astridson, when he became noted in the world. At this time a beardless youth, who, on the back of this tragedy, fled hastily to Sweden, where were friends of Ulf. After some ten years eclipse there, Knut and both his sons being now dead, Svein reappeared in Denmark under a new and eminent figure, Jarl of Denmark highest leechman to the then soaring there. Broke his oath to said sovereign, declared himself, Svein Estrithson, to be real king of Denmark, and, after much preliminary trouble and many beatings and disastrous flights to and fro, became in effect such, to the wonder of mankind, for he had not had one victory to cheer him on, or any good luck or merit that one sees, except that of surviving longer than some others. Nevertheless, he came to be the restorer, so-called, of Danish independence, sole remaining representative of Knut, or Knut's sister, of Forkbeard, Bluetooth, and Old Gorm, and ancestor of all the subsequent kings of Denmark for some four hundred years, himself coming, as we see, only by the distaff side, all of the sword or male side having died so soon. Early death, it has been observed, was the great Knut's allotment, and all his posterity as well. Fatal limit, had there been no others which we seen there were, to his becoming Charlemagne of the North, in any considerable degree. Jarl Ulf, as we have seen, had a sister, Guda by name, wife to Earl Godwin, Gudin Ulfnadsson, as Snorro calls him, a very memorable Englishman, whose son and hers, King Harald, Harald in English books, as the memorablest of all, these things ought to be better known to English antiquaries, and will perhaps be alluded to again. This pretty little victory or affront gained over Knut in Lumfjord was among the last successes of Olaf against that mighty man. Olaf, the skilful captain he was, need not have despaired to defend his Norway against Knut and all the world. But he learned henceforth, month by month ever more tragically, that his own people, seeing softer prospects under Knut, and in particular the chiefs of them, industriously bribed by Knut for years past, had fallen away from him, and that his means of defense were gone. Next summer Knut's grand fleet sailed, unopposed, along the coast of Norway, Knut summoning a thing every here and there, and in all of them meeting nothing but sky-high acclamation and acceptance. Olaf, with some twelve little ships, all he now had, lay quiet in some safe fjord, near Lindenais, 
what we now call the Nays, behind some little solitary isles on the southeast of Norway there, till triumphant Knut had streamed home again. Home to England again, sovereign of Norway now, with nephew Hakon appointed Jarl and vice-regent under him. This was the news Olaf met on venturing out, and that his worst anticipations were not beyond the sad truth all, or almost all, the chief ponderers and men of weight in Norway had declared against him, and stood with triumphant Knut. Olaf, with his twelve poor ships, steered vigorously along the coast to collect money and force, if such could now anywhere be had. He himself was resolute to hold out and try. Sailing swiftly with a fair wind, morning cloudy with some showers, he passed the coast of Jederen, which was Erling Skjalgsson's country, when he got sure notice of an endless multitude of ships, warships, armed merchant ships, all kinds of shipping craft, down to fishermen's boats, just getting under way against him, under the command of Erling Skjalgsson, the powerfulest of his subjects, once much a friend of Olaf's, but now gone against him to this length, thanks to Olaf's severity of justice, and Knut's abundance in gold and promises for years back. To that complexion had it come with Erling, sailing with this immense assemblage of the naval people and populace of Norway, to seize King Olaf and bring him to the great Knut, dead or alive. Erling had a grand new ship of his own, which far outsailed the general miscellany of rebel ships, and was visibly fast gaining distance on Olaf himself, who well understood what Erling's puzzle was, between the tale of his game, the miscellany of rebel ships, namely, that could not come up, and the head or general prize of the game, which was crowding all sail to get away. And Olaf took advantage of the same. Lower your sails, said Olaf to his men, though we must go slower. Ho you, we have lost sight of them, said Erling to his, and put on all his speed. Olaf going, soon after this, altogether invisible, behind a little island that he knew of, went into a certain fjord or bay, bay of Fungen on the maps, which he thought would suit him. Halt here, and get out your arms, said Olaf, and had not to wait long till Erling came bounding in, past the rocky promontory, and with astonishment beheld Olaf's fleet, of twelve with their battle-axes, and their grappling irons all in perfect readiness. These fell on him, the unready Erling, simultaneous like a cluster of angry bees, and in a few minutes cleared his ship of men altogether, except Erling himself. Nobody asked his life, nor probably would have got if he had. Only Erling still stood erect on a high place on the poop, fiercely defensive, and very difficult to get at. Could not be reached at all, says Snorro, except by spears or arrows, and these he warded off with untiring dexterity. No man in Norway, it was said, had ever defended himself so long alone against many. An almost invincible Erling, had his cause been good. Olaf himself noticed Erling's behavior, and said to him, from the foredeck below, Thou hast turned against me to-day, Erling. The eagles fight breast to breast, answers he. This was a speech of the kings to Erling once long ago, while they stood fighting, not as now, but side by side. The king, with some transient thought of possibility going through his head, rejoins, Wilt thou surrender, Erling? That will I, answered he, took the helmet off his head, 
laid down sword and shield, and went forward to the forecastle deck. The king pricked, I think not very harshly, into Erling's chin or beard with the point of his battle-axe, saying, I must mark thee as traitor to thy sovereign, so. Whereupon one of the bystanders, Aslak Fityaskale, stupidly and fiercely burst up, smote Erling on the head with his axe, so that it struck fast in his brain, and was instantly the death of Erling. Ill luck attend thee for that stroke, thou hast struck Norway out of my hand by it, cried the king to Aslak, but forgave the poor fellow, who had done it meaning well. The insurrectionary bonder fleet, arriving soon after, as if for certain victory, was struck with astonishment at this Erling catastrophe, and, being now without any leader of authority, made not the least attempt of battle, but, full of discouragement and consternation, thankfully allowed Olaf to sail away on his northward voyage, at discretion, and themselves went off lamenting with Erling's dead body. This small victory was the last that Olaf had over his many enemies at present. He sailed along still northward day after day. Several important people joined him, but the news from landward grew daily more ominous. Bonders busily arming to rear of him, and ahead, Hakon still more busily atroned him, now nearby. And he will end thy days, king, if he have strength enough. Olaf paused, sent scouts to a hilltop. Hakon's armament visible enough, and underway hitherward about the isle of Bjarno, yonder. Soon after, Olaf himself saw the bonder armament of twenty-five ships, from the southward, sail past in the distance to join that of Hakon. And worse still, his own ships, one and another, seven in all, were slipping off on a like errand. He made for the fjord of Fodra, mouth of the rugged strass called Valdal, which I think still knows Olaf and has now an Olaf's highway, where, nine centuries ago, it scarcely had a path. Olaf entered this fjord, had his land tent set up, and a cross beside it, on the small level green behind the promontory there. Finding that his twelve poor ships were now reduced to five, against a world all risen upon him, he could not but see and admit to himself that there was no chance left, and that he must withdraw across the mountains and wait for a better time. His journey through that wild country, in these forlorn and straitened circumstances, has a mournful dignity and homely pathos, as described by Snorro, how he drew up his five poor ships upon the beach, packed all their furniture away, and with his hundred or so of attendants and their journey baggage, under guidance of some friendly bonder, rode up into the desert and foot of the mountains, scaled after three days' effort, as if by miracle, thought his attendants and thought Snorro, the well-nigh precipitous slopes that led across, never without miraculous aid from heaven, and all of good baggage wagons have ascended that pass. In short, have he fared along, beset by difficulties and the mournfulness thoughts, but patiently persisted, steadfastly trusted in God, and was fixed to return, and by God's help try again. An evidently very pious and devout man, a good man struggling with adversity, such as the gods, we may still imagine with the ancients, do look down upon as their noblest sight. He got to Sweden to the court of his brother-in-law, kindly and nobly enough received there, though gradually, perhaps, ill-seen by the now authorities of Norway. 
so that before long he quitted sweden left his queen there with her only daughter his and hers the only child they had he himself had an only son by a bondwoman magnus by name who came to great things afterwards of whom and of which by and by with this bright little boy and a selected escort of attendants he moved away to russia to king jaroslav where he might wait secure against all risk of hurting kind friends by his presence he seems to have been an exile altogether some two years such is one's vague notion for there is no chronology in snorro or his sagas and one is reduced of guessing and inferring he had reigned over norway reckoning from the first days of his landing there to those last of his leaving it across the dovrefjeld about fifteen years ten of them shiningly victorious the news from norway were naturally agitating to king olaf and in the fluctuation of events there his purposes and prospects varied much he sometimes thought of pilgriming to jerusalem and a henceforth exclusively religious life but for most part his pious thoughts themselves gravitated towards norway and a stroke for his old place and task there which he steadily considered to have been committed to him by god norway by the rumors was evidently not at rest jarl hakon under the high patronage of his uncle had lasted there but a little while i know not that his government was especially unpopular nor whether he himself much remembered his broken oath it appears however he had left in england a beautiful bride and considering farther that in england only could bridal ornaments and other wedding outfit of a sufficiently royal kind be found he set sail thither to fetch her and them himself one evening of wildish looking weather he was seen about the northeast corner of the pentland frith the night rose to be tempestuous hakon or any timber of his fleet was never seen more had all gone down broken oaths bridal hopes and all else mouse and man into the roaring waters there was no further opposition line the like of which had lasted ever since old heathen hakon jarl down to this his grandson hakon's finis in the pentland frith with this hakon's disappearance it now disappeared indeed knut himself though of an empire suddenly so great was but a temporary phenomenon fate had decided that the grand and wise knut was to be short-lived and to leave nothing as successors but an ineffectual youth harold herefoot who soon perished and a still stupider fiercely drinking hardaknut who rushed down of apoplexy here in london city as i guess with the goblet at his mouth drinking health and happiness at a wedding feast also before long hakon having vanished in this dark way there ensued a pause both on knut's part and on norway's pause or interregnum of some months till it became certain first whether hakon were actually dead secondly till norway and especially till king knut himself could decide what to do knut to the deep disappointment which had to keep itself silent of three or four chief norway men named none of the three or four jarl of norway but besought him of a certain swain a bastard son of his own who and almost still more his english mother much desired a carrier in the world fitter for him thought they indignantly than that of captain over jomsburg where alone the father had been able to provide for him hitherto swain was sent to norway as king or vice king for father knut and along with him his fond and vehement mother 
neither of whom gained any favor from the Norse people by the kind of management they ultimately came to show. Olaf, on news of this change, and such uncertainty, prevailing everywhere in Norway, as to the future course of things, whether Svein would come, as was rumored of at last, and be able to maintain himself if he did, thought there might be something on it of a chance for himself and his rights. And, after lengthened hesitation, much prayer, pious invocation and consideration, decided to go and try it. The final grain that had turned the balance, it appears, was a whole waking morning dream, or almost ocular vision he had of his glorious cousin Olaf Trugveson, who severely admonished, exhorted, and encouraged him, and disappeared grandly, just in the instant of Olaf's awakening, so that Olaf almost fancied he had seen the very figure of him as it melted into air. Let us on, let us on, thought Olaf always after that. He left his son, not in Russia, but in Sweden with the Queen, who proved very good and carefully helpful in wise ways to him. In Russia Olaf had now nothing more to do but give his grateful adieus and get ready. His march towards Sweden, and from that towards Norway, and the passes of the mountains, down Borodal towards Stixelstad, and the crisis that awaited, is beautifully depicted by Snorro. It has, all of it, the description, and we see clearly the fact itself had, a kind of pathetic grandeur, simplicity, and rude nobleness, something epic or Homeric, without the meter or the singing of Homer, but with all the sincerity, rugged truth to nature, and much more of piety, devoutness, reverence, for what is forever high in this universe, than meets us in those old Greek ballad-mongers. Singularly visual all of it, too, brought home in every particular to one's imagination, so that it stands out almost as a thing one actually saw. Olaf had about three thousand men with him, gathered mostly as he fared along through Norway. Four hundred raised by one Dag, a kinsman whom he had found in Sweden and persuaded to come with him, marched usually in a separate body, and were, or might have been, rather an important element. Learning that the Bonders were all arming, especially in Trondheim country, Olaf streamed down towards them in the closest order he could. By no means very close, subsistence even for three thousand being difficult in such a country. His speech was almost always free and cheerful, though his thoughts always naturally were of a high and earnest, almost sacred tone, devout above all. Stickelstad, a small poor hamlet still standing where the valley ends, was seen by Olaf, and tacitly by the bonders as well, to be the natural place for offering battle. There Olaf issued out from the hills one morning, drove himself up according to the best rules of Norse tactics, rules of little complexity, but perspicuously true to the facts. I think he had a clear open ground still rather raised above the plain in front. He could see how the Bonder army had not yet quite arrived, but was pouring forward in spontaneous rows or groups, copiously by every path. This was thought to be the biggest army that ever met in Norway. Certainly not much fewer than a hundred times a hundred men, according to Snorro. Great Bonders, several of them, small Bonders, very many all of willing mind, animated with a hot sense of intolerable injuries. King Olaf had punished great and small with equal rigor, says Snorro, 
which appeared to the chief people of the country too severe, and animosity rose to the highest when they lost relatives by the king's just sentence, although they were in reality guilty. He again would rather renounce his dignity than omit righteous judgment. The accusation against him of being stingy with his money was not just, for he was a most generous man towards his friends. But that alone was the cause of the discontent raised against him, that he appeared hard and severe in his retributions. Besides, King Knut offered large sums of money, and the great chiefs were corrupted by this, and by his offering them greater dignities than they had possessed before. On these grounds against the interrible man, great and small were now pouring along by every path. Olaf perceived it would still be some time before the Bonder army was in rank. His own duck of Sweden, too, was not yet come up. He was to have the red banner, King Olaf's own being the middle or grand one, some other person the third or left banner. All which being perfectly ranked and settled, according to the best rules, and waiting only the arrival of Dag. Olaf bade his men sit down, and freshen themselves with a little rest. There were religious services gone through. A matin's worship, such as there have been few, sternly earnest to the heart of it, and deep as death and eternity, at least on Olaf's own part. For the rest Stormont sang a stave of the fiercest Scaldic poetry that was in him. All the army straightway sang it in chorus with fiery mind. The bonder of the nearest farm came up to tell Olaf that he also wished to fight for him. Thanks to thee, but don't, said Olaf. Stay at home, rather, that the wounded may have some shelter. To this bonder Olaf delivered all the money he had, with solemn order to lay out the whole of it in masses and prayers for the souls of such of his enemies as fell. Such of thy enemies, king. Yes, yeah, surely, said Olaf. My friends will all either conquer or go whither I also am going. At last the bonder army, too, was got ranked three commanders, one of them with a kind of loose chief command, having settled to take charge of it and began to shake itself towards actual advance. Olaf, in the meanwhile, had laid his head on the knees of Finn Arneson, his trustiest man, and fallen fast asleep. Finn's brother, Kalf Arneson, once a warm friend of Olaf, was chief of the three commanders on the opposite side. Finn and he addressed angry speech to one another from the opposite ranks, when they came near enough. Finn, seeing the enemy fairly approach, stirred Olaf from his sleep. Oh, why hast thou wakened me from such a dream? said Olaf in a deeply solemn tone. What dream was it then? asked Finn. I dreamed that there rose a ladder here reaching up to very heaven, said Olaf. I had climbed and climbed and got to the very last step and should have entered there had thou given me another moment. King, I doubt thou are fay, but I do not quite like that dream. The actual fight began about one of the clock in the most bright last day of July, and was very fierce and hot, especially on the part of Olaf's men, who shook the others back a little, though fierce enough they too, and had Doug been on the ground, which he wasn't yet, it was thought victory might have been won. Soon after battle joined, the sky grew of a ghastly brass or copper color, darker and darker, till thick night involved all things and did not clear away again till battle was near ending. Dag, with his four hundred, arrived in the darkness and made a furious charge, 
what was afterwards, in the speech of the people, called Doug's Storm, which had nearly prevailed but could not quite, victory again inclining to the so vastly larger party. It is uncertain still how the matter would have gone, for Olaf himself was now fighting with his own hand, and doing deadly execution on his busiest enemies to right and to left. But one of these chief rebels, Thorer Hund, though to have learned magic from the Laplanders, whom he long traded with and made money by, mysteriously would not fall from Olaf's best strokes. Best strokes brought only dust from the enchanted deerskin coat of the fellow, to Olaf's surprise, when another of the rebel chiefs rushed forward, struck Olaf with his battle-axe, a wild slashing wound, and miserably broke his thigh, so that he staggered or was supported back to the nearest stone, and there sat down, lamentably calling on God to help him in this bad hour. Another rebel of note, the name of him long memorable in Norway, slashed or stabbed Olaf a second time, as did then a third, upon which the noble Olaf sank dead, and forever quitted this dog-hole of a world, little worthy of such men as Olaf one sometimes thinks. But that too is a mistake, and even an important one, should we persist in it. With Olaf's death the sky cleared again. Battle now near done, ended with complete victory to the rebels, and next to no pursuit or result except the death of Olaf everybody hastening home, as soon as the big duel had decided itself. Olaf's body was secretly carried, after dark, to some outhouse on the farm near the spot, whither a poor blind beggar, creeping in for shelter that very evening, was miraculously restored to sight. And, truly with a notable, almost miraculous speed, the feelings of all Norway for King Olaf changed themselves, and were turned upside down, within a year, or almost within a day. Superlative example of extinctus amabitur idem, not all of the sick set any longer, but all of the blessed, or saint, now clearly in heaven, such the name and character of him, from that time to this. Two churches dedicated to him, out of four that once stood, stand in London at this moment. And the miracles that have been done there, not to speak of Norway and Christendom elsewhere, in his name, were numerous and great for long centuries afterwards. Visibly a saint Olaf ever since, and, indeed, in Bolandus or elsewhere, I have seldom met with better stuff to make a saint of, or a true world hero, in all good senses. Speaking of the London Olaf churches, I should have added that from one of these, the thrice-famous Tooley Street gets its name, where those three tailors, addressing Parliament and the universe, sublimely styled themselves, we the people of England, St. Olaf Street, St. Ollie Street, Stooley Street, Tooley Street, such are the metamorphoses of human fame in the world. The battle day of Stickelstad, King Olaf's death day, is generally believed to have been Wednesday, July the 31st, 1033. But on investigation it turns out that there was no total eclipse of the sun visible in Norway that year, though three years before there was one, but on the 29th instead of the 31st so that the exact date still remains uncertain, Dahlman, the latest critic, inclining for 1030 and its indisputable eclipse. End of section 7, Early Kings of Norway, chapter 10